0: Hello and welcome back. Please do come in and make yourself comfortable. Welcome to the RPG interview room, although this is a very special one. This is not entirely RPG, but it's very RPG related. I am Paco Garcia, your host, and my guest with me is (laughs) fantastic having him around. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, Erin Evans, welcome. How are you? very good thank you for having me oh it's an absolute pleasure it's an absolute pleasure having you and very very exciting at many levels um firstly because it's it's you and i've, I've, I've <laughs> heard from you for a long time and it's great uh so i'm I'm sorry i'm I'm going all fanboy here um but also it's very exciting to have you around because you've been working on a very very cool project with some fantastic people you yeah. have the Sundering. How amazing is that?
1: It's fantastic. It was a really fantastic experience. We are actually—I'm um, uh, not sure when this is going to—is going to air, but the um, tomorrow on the eighth, we're doing a or seventh, we're doing a, um, a Google Hangout uh, to wrap it up. So all the authors of the Sundering talking about the Sundering, um, which was an amazing process. I mean, it was really great to get in a room with all the other authors to talk about story, to talk about the forgotten realms, what we, you know, what we love, what we, we've always wanted to try. Um, and yeah, just, just the whole, the whole big project from the novels to the, to the RPGs, um, even into, you know, video games like Neverwinter, mm. it was a really amazing experience.
0: Yes. For the people out there who may not be, um, fully aware and, uh, know, uh, what the Sundering has been all about. Uh, tell us a little bit about what 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 is it? Where does it come from?
1: Uh, the Sundering was a, a is a huge event um, that's meant to take the Forgotten Realms, one of the you know the premier <laughs> campaign settings for Dungeons and Dragons, um, sort of back to its roots to to a feel that people really fell in love with, um, and to to help it sort of transition into uh, the the rule set for fifth edition uh, in a way that made sense in an organic story kind of way. So you have uh, big upheavals, you have war, you have um, the gods trying to consolidate power, you have massive geographical changes as this happens. um, And it builds through a series of novels uh, which follow six different sets of characters during this time of great upheaval. Um, from the first sort of inkling that something is going on, through to you know the big battles between uh, high-level powers. Uh, my book, *The Adversary*, was the third in the series, and it followed my character, Farida, uh, a Tiefling warlock, um, as she uncovered um, part of the gods' plans for hanging on to their godhood.
0: So it's uh, the, the whole thing is a massive epic. I mean, *The Sundering* is as epic as epic can come. Is is gigantic you have um, on basically all the, the writers that have been uh, contributing to this project, you have more than one book, how has the process of actually deciding what kind of um, characters, adventures what kind of um, development uh, process has been followed to, to keep everything in line to what the message is meant to be of, of this recreation this uh, bringing back the forgotten realms to what used to be or what people liked
1: well uh, there's been just a huge amount of conversation of um, you know cross-pollination and discussing what it is we want to see what what it is that um, we want to recapture Um, and I think it's I I was brought in, I am the sort of quote-unquote the fourth edition author since I wrote my first novels um, in the fourth edition timeline and with fourth edition elements. So for those of you who did really love fourth edition and didn't want to see it lost, I I felt like I was sort of there to say, here's how we can weave these together so you can have it both ways, kind of. Um, I was originally asked to come up with a story um, with a new character, with a, a human character preferably, uh, and I, you know, I worked on that, and I came to them, and I said, "Here's the thing. I really love my Brimstone Angels story. I love where it's going, and I'm really surprised at how well the plans for the sundering knit into that storyline." And they said, "You know, that's great, but we think tieflings are too weird for people to relate to." And I said to them. Okay, I don't think that's true. It's about how well do you write these characters because, you know, you can say people can relate to humans more easily. But your best-selling novels are about a drow. Are you going to tell me that drow aren't really freaking weird? (laughs) Right? It's not about what do they look like? Do they look like me? It's about how well is that character crafted? How well does that character speak to your experiences? Um, And you may not, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure none of your listeners have horns and a tail. But I'm sure that a lot of them have been in situations where they felt marginalized. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that a lot of them have been in situations where they felt like they weren't... they were kind of torn between their family and going out and becoming their own person. I, I think a lot of people, I'm pretty sure everybody has been in a position where they have to do the right thing, but the right thing is hard. And and those are the things that make the Brimstone Angel saga um, a good candidate for the Sundering, because it is something where you can step in and kind of imagine being that character.
0: And obviously, I mean, you have had the chance to develop the character to a point and get some feedback to the point where you can actually give people also what people need, what people want, and, and to make the character into something really special, because this is a second novel with the same character, with three as you mentioned.
1: It's actually, The Adversary is the third novel, actually. There's a, it's, it's a little bit, <laughs> it's a little unfortunate. I found a lot of people missed the second novel, Lesser Evils, <laughs> um it just came out at a time when things were sort of shifting and didn't get as much push but yeah so there's brimstone angels there's lesser evils and then there's the adversary so yeah there was there between brimstone angels and lesser evils there was a, a good deal of ramp up i had intended always to write um at least three books and and now it's gone to six um so uh, yeah and and to me that's always been a part of how do you write these books well we play D to kind of inhabit another person in a way to like kind of pretend to be someone else and and in ways that's still going to be us right you don't tend to play characters that you you can't relate to at all um but you go and you you know you pretend like you're a wizard or you're Mm -hmm. a, a fighter you know and so if you have a character that people can relate to that they can kind of empathize with and and imagine on some level imagine being in the shoes of and then you're telling a story that i think is true to D&D, that, that these I think these books do best when you can really identify with a character when you really love them and want to know more about them.
0: Absolutely. And and I'm sorry, I'm going to come out of the, of the D&D closet and say tieflings are cool.
1: I love tieflings. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> come on, what's not to like about them? People with a very difficult past, with difficult decisions, with this inner conflict all the time. Tieflings are amazing.
1: And the thing I love about them is that for a lot of, a lot of the, the fantasy races that are Sort of not human and weird. They still have a full culture, right? Mm. You, you like d- people will sometimes say tiefling are the new drow, right? But drow come from a culture with with a you know a, a, a society that's sort of pushing on them, right, to be a certain way, and either they adapt to that or they rebel against it, right? But tieflings, tieflings are scattered everywhere. They don't have a homogenous culture. They are the they belong to whatever culture they were born into, right? So they might be more. Um, sort of eat devilish and diabolical if they're, you know, coming out of the hells or something. But, you know, um, like Frida and Howler were born in Time anther, So culturally, in a lot of ways, they're dragonborn. Um, you know, they have this, this really strong sense of filial piety. They don't really understand the gods in a lot of ways. Um, and, and those are very dragonborn traits that that they've grown up with, but they have nothing to do with being a tiefling in particular. So you, you get this, per, you know, perception of them as being, Homogenize that they're all—all all tieflings are like X. It wouldn't be hard for someone in the Forgotten Realms to think that. But the reality is that you can adapt that character however you want. You know, if you want a tiefling from Waterdeep, they're going to be a little different than a tiefling from Aklarond. You want a tiefling who's from Calamshan? They're going to be hugely different from a tiefling who happened to grow up in Westgate.
0: Hmm. Exactly. No, I- I'm sorry, but whoever thinks that difference, you know, the people cannot relate to them. No, wrong, wrong. wrong. <laughs> that's, that's, that's just that wrong. Now, th- th- I'm very curious about one thing. Okay, the um, th- the whole um, Sandring saga. Y- you have been writing with other royalty writers. I mean, wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, Bob Salvatore was was not to like about the man. He's he's lovely. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, Ed Greenwood, the man who started the Forgotten Realms. Amazing. Troy Denney, who is an absolute gem of a human being, and Paul Kemp. I mean, you've been writing with some of the best people out there.
1: Don't forget Richard Lee Byers. Yes, there's so many of us; it's easy to drop. One.
0: Yes, sorry, Richard. My apologies. How how was that in terms of as a writer? To be able to have that kind of exchange and uh, swapping of ideas and and bounce things from from such a wonderful, wonderful, amazing bunch of people.
1: So I won't lie to you. The first time it was really daunting. <laughs> I was so afraid. But when I first was invited, I was I kind of had to read the email a couple of times. Like, did you send this to me on purpose? <laughs> <laughs> Is that an accident? Um, but when, you know, we got into the first, I actually wasn't at, at the first story summit. I, I participated by phone because I had uh, just given birth to my son four really? days earlier. So I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to leave the house yet. I tried. I was like, I think I can get down there. My husband was like, <laughs> go back to bed. Uh, but so then the second time we did, we did one at Gen Con and I was, I was just very nervous in that room with all these, you know, I mean... Yeah, like you said, they're the they're the top of the top, um, and and in and the subsequent ones, like I, I kind of start out a little nervous, but as soon as you start talking, as soon as you start talking about your book, and these are people, these are people who want to hear about your book, you know, they want to talk about, you know, the first conversation I can remember having about books with with like with Troy Denning, mm-hmm. he sat down and we had been talking about ways to sort of cross pollinate books, and he just like he pulls out this notepad and he just he hadn't been on participating much on the email and it was because he was thinking about it and he wanted to talk about it to you face to face so we had this conversation about his character um Arietta and how she might know my character Bryn uh, because they both move in the same circles and and he had an idea that you know they could she could be his first love or something and I'm like that position is taken um but but it would work if we did this or that and we kind of decided that that maybe her mother was sort of deluded and thinking that Arietta and Brynn could totally get married. <laughs> um, so we have this, this funny little, there's these funny little kind of references in each book of, of sort of Brynn thinks she's crazy and, and Arietta thinks he's sort of tragic. Um, but so the thing that turned out to be really wonderful is that, like you said, they're, they're fantastic people. They're amazing writers and they are such great guys. It's like having five, you know wonderful big brothers looking out for you they gave me they give me every time I see them they give me so much advice um you know they they tell me the nicest things about my books and it I, I think I cry every time
0: because
1: <laughs> it's just I mean it it like it's funny because at the same time they're you know they're colleagues and they're friends and then at this and and simultaneously they're they're on some level they're kind of heroes right you know you you want to hear that
0: well, and now you are part of that pantheon. Let's face it; I mean, you were <laughs> you you were already a very well established writer, and and now I mean, this has consolidated you as one of the top D and D writers ever. Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's that's how it is. Okay, um, let's jump a little bit into um, into the the book, which is going to be released on the fourteenth of October. Fire in the Blood. Yes. Uh, which sounds very very exciting w- what is it all about
1: uh fire in the blood is follows the adversary it's the story uh it's it's sort of my my finally getting to cormier book um i've been intending to write a brimstone angels book in cormier um that was supposed to be the sequel to brimstone angels and then i pushed that out to write about Harpers and the Jintarum with lesser evils and then it was supposed to be book three and then it was pushed out to write the sundering so this is finally getting to cormier and because there's so much time has passed it's it's got, the problem in Cormier has gotten really bad. Um, Bryn, uh, ha- Frida and Havilar's friend, Havilar's, you know boyfriend, I guess. Mm-hmm. But there's a better word for that, but it's, <laughs> it's a realmsy word. And I don't know how much people will attach to it, um, is, uh, is in line for the throne in a very sort of complicated tracing of, of blood. Uh, his father was the uh, illegitimate child of the, the crown prince. So he was legitimized it, it, but it wasn't followed through because he was murdered. So Bryn has this kind of official position hanging over him and he's trying to keep from getting there. And as he's trying to manipulate this sort of succession crisis, um, he's simultaneously trying to deal with the fact that he's engaged to the princess of Cormier, which happened while Havilar was out of, was out of the picture and trying to break that engagement without destroying himself. Um And war is coming to Cormier, so it's already bad enough, and then the crown prince disappears. So the story is, on one hand, about them going to find the crown prince, Mm -hmm. uh, and on the other hand, it stays in Suzale, and it deals with the Harpers trying to figure out what it is that Shade is trying to do to destroy, uh, to win the war, um, because they're on top at the start.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, we were talking earlier about how um, character development... Uh, is, is kind of key to be able to relate to, to your characters and be able to relate to the, to the book and, and to the story itself. How have you handled the, the character development compared with or together with the massive epic scale or the of the events going around in the Forgotten Realms?
1: The, I think the thing that's great is you can look at those big epic events and uh, think about how they would affect this one person. You know, it's it's interesting to read. Like I think the the analogy has gone around about the Sundering being like World War II, and each of these books is sort of a, a peek into the life of someone in uh, living through it. You know, you have this is someone experiencing Pearl Harbor, and this is someone experiencing um, you know the war in North Africa, and and so on and so forth. Uh, and and in that way, you can say, well, if you are um, you know, for example, in *Fire and the Blood*, if you are a Cormirian, uh if you're if you're a Cormorian and you know this this war is coming, you're going to react to that differently. If you're a noble, or if you're a commoner, if you're in the military, or if you're you know if you're ruling the country, all these people have sort of different things pressing on them. And and with your life keeps going, and that's the thing that I really love playing with. That that you know, Princess Radra is. Um, dealing with this succession crisis worried about her country that she loves so much and simultaneously dealing with the fact that everybody is gossiping over her fiance having a tiefling lover and how embarrassing is that how hard is that to deal with Um, so you can kind of pull all these things together and they they push on the character in different ways and make them react to different aspects in different ways for example you know if everybody's gossiping about Raedra when it comes time to kind of take the reins you know, she might be thinking, is anybody going to even listen to me because they're all laughing at me behind my back? Mm. And that's what I love to do is is to take those different pressures and and sort of see how that would shape a character. They almost form in the space between them.
0: And for you, considering that you have written novels that were based in the fourth edition of Dungeons and Dragons, how was the process for you to actually adapt and, and change some of the stuff that you've done in the past to to the fifth edition the, the new D.
1: so the nice thing is my books are still in advance of the the sort of the final sundering events where the planes pull apart and um and and the rules officially shift they're in the process of changing mm-hmm. so i haven't had to do anything too major at this point uh the nice thing too was was for a lot of the details you know like like the warlock there was the third edition warlock which is different from the fourth edition warlock um or even tieflings you know the the tieflings from earlier editions were very different from the fourth edition tieflings mm-hmm. and in in those two cases you know I discuss, we discussed this uh, RPG and, and the story editor and I, and I said, you know, I can't tell this story if I don't have these pieces. If warlocks suddenly don't make pacts um, to draw power from other planes, then I don't know what to do with Farida there. Um, and, you know, if tieflings are suddenly, they're they're all varied and different, and and they've always been that way, and this is just one variant, it becomes difficult to write about Tieflings as a uh, kind of a marginalized class in the society if if people don't assume you know this combination of traits as a tiefling and i i still argue that that the sort of demon born at tieflings and other various fiends the rakshasa the night hags there's so many possibilities they still exist i think that they you know they're post the the ascension they still exist but those those sort of devil born tieflings in, if you're going to keep the world continuous, those those have to be the ones that people associate with that word. Mm. Um, which is nice if you're a demon-born teeth and you just kind of fly under the radar like, nope, I'm totally normal. I'm definitely not one of those horned and tailed weirdos. <laughs> that,
0: that, sounds, that sounds indeed very fair enough. Um, tell me a little bit about Farid. I'm, I'm very curious um, about her. Um, from the point of view, let's assume that the listeners know absolutely nothing about her. Okay. What what's the what's Farieth 101?
1: Farida is. Farida, so her, her, her character sheet is she's a tiefling warlock. Mm-hmm. Uh she has an infernal pact. Um she is she's good. She kind of she's probably neutral good. <laughs> so she comes from she comes from uh she's adopted. She was adopted by a dragonborn man named Mahen. Uh she has a twin sister, Havilar, who is uh kind of crazy she's she's kind of flighty she's she's very girly but she's also uh just like a savant with a glaive she's she's a very tough character who also likes ribbons and and silly things (laughs) um and she's a little reckless so Farida is sort of of the two of them the big sister she's the one who worries about taking care of, of Havilar. and she just in general she's very inclined to um worry about the people she loves and, and want to make sure that everything is okay um this is what leads her to take a pact with uh a half devil named lorgan um that because she she fears so much for the safety of her the people she loves that she's willing to take these powers and use them to to protect people and so the course through the course of uh the prince of angel saga she goes up against enemies that are probably way over her level but she's you know, she cares more about making sure everybody's okay than, than her own safety a lot of the time. Um, she's comes into contact with Harper's and nobles of Cormier and of course the devils of the nine hells, um, Shade's not a fan of her. Uh, and you know, that she, this is a sort of the story of, of, of her coming into her own and, and kind of realizing who she is and, and what she can do. Um, it also involves, she, she comes under the notice of Asmodeus, who's the king of the nine hells and also the god of sort of transgression and sin um, in, in, in the, the sundering that kind of comes to a head. And, and that his, his story actually is, is the other thing that goes through the, the six books of the Brimstone Angel Saga.
0: How has Ferida surprised you?
1: How has she surprised me? She, you know what's funny? I, You would think having written this many books that I would know her so well that, that it would just be s- just super easy to write. Um, but the thing that I find happens is I get to a point and I realize that she's I've, – I've made a bad decision somewhere back in the story. Like somewhere I said, well, she'll do this. And I'll write it and she'll do it. And it'll just kind of start to peter out. And it's almost like she's just pretending for me like, oh, yeah, no, I, I'd do that and it's it's like it's strange to me um i am always impressed like when when i write these and it sounds silly right she's not it's not like she's a real person over here but but it does sort of like it's almost like it's working on it in your subconscious and and it's it is its own little story and its own little person um i I like the fact that she manages to avoid really becoming corrupt Mm -hmm. um that it, it always to me feels natural that she she makes the right choice, even when it's really hard. And when I started, you know, I was that was sort of a question, you know, what happens? Does she become corrupted? And and the longer I go, the more difficult it is to find something that would really do it. She's she's kind of a funny bird in that she's taking these powers, which are almost certainly having some effect on her, but she'll never know. And, you know, until she's dead, she doesn't know. But she she doesn't really want the power for power's sake. And I don't know. I find that I find that interesting mm. when I write about it. because I always think it's going to happen, and it doesn't.
0: Well, it, it sounds like at some point something is going to pop in your mind and think, "Oh yes, oh I it's didn't it's know this." It's entirely
1: possible. Yeah. <laughs> I love those the moments. There was a yeah, there was a, a scene in *Fire and the Blood* where I wrote this little bit of description, and I meant it to mean one thing, but then I realized I could read it a different way, and it turned out this the, the part of why Farida is a warlock is that they're the devil's of the hells there are these collector devils mm-hmm. i was trying to think of a way you could have a warlock character who was good who wasn't like i will sell my soul for powers because let's face it when you're a first level warlock that is not worth selling your soul over
0: no <laughs> it's
1: just not he's like "Ooh, eldritch blast for internal damnation <laughs> you did not get a good deal buddy So my idea was that there are – in the nine hells, the hierarchy is so important and and devils advance largely by how many souls they collect. But there's going to be points in this – in any bureaucracy, right? You hit a point where you can't advance until somebody, like, quits or dies in this case because devils don't quit or gets demoted. You're going to hit dead ends where you're just not going to get anywhere. So you do these little things to almost, like – like have these little ticks on your performance evaluation. Yes, they get a lot of souls, but also they manage to collect, you know, all these warlocks. And and it also has a feel it reminds me a little of geek culture like you can do things like you get you get all the autographs of the cast of Battlestar Galactica or you collect all the Forgotten Realms novels or you have all these comic books in mint condition and and your regular random person is not necessarily going to appreciate how difficult that was, mm. but someone else, another geek is going to go, "Wow, damn, that's amazing." <laughs> So these collector devils are sort of like a subculture in a way. And so Lorcan is a the the devil Farida has a pact with, and he has collected what's called a Toral 13, which are warlocks descended from the original coven that made the pact that helped Asmodeus become a god. Um, and as it, in Adversary, it comes to light that the ghost of Farida's ancestor, or something like a ghost, Briseis Kakistos, is following her around. She She's not happy with Asmodeus, and she thinks that she can get something going if she can have, get Farida, something from Farida. And I don't remember why I told you that story. Because there was, a, there was, a, <laughs> what did you ask me? Maybe that was it.
0: Well, that, that's the kind of thing that surprised you. Well, oh, it the, sounds the fascinating.
1: Yeah. So that was, I mean, that's one thing is that I I realized, I wrote some little bit of description and I realized it made me think, oh my gosh, this is her backstory. This is who she was. And this is how she came to this point. And it's, you know, it, it, it comes out in, A little in Fire in the Blood, you start to get like little glimpses of it. And then in the book I'm working on currently, Ashes of the Tyrant, it'll come out more and then it comes to a head in the sixth book.
0: You know, the one thing I have to say, and this is uh, not really um, fake flattery or anything, but it's absolutely wonderful and incredible to hear the enthusiasm in your voice (laughs) as you speak about her It's fantastic.
1: It's, you know, that's the thing It's like, you have to love this, you know, you have to, I mean, if you, if you don't, it's so much work, right? <laughs> I, it's funny, because people, I think people a lot of times think if you write shared world fiction, well, it's easier, they already made the setting for you. And it's like, it's not, it's not because you have to do all this research and figure out how can you best tell the story you want to tell using the pieces that are already in the place. Like if, you know, if you want to, to add something you have to figure out where is it going to fit. Um, so, in a lot of ways, I think it's more like writing historical fiction. You know, I have to read so many source books and articles and novels to kind of get an idea of like how how does this fit. And core and for Fire in the Blood, Cormier was the worst place to go for that. There's, I mean, oh, so much information. It was so much information that even after doing my research, I actually sought out the author of several Dragon Magazine articles, Brian Cortijo, right. who is a designer and also a huge fan and expert on Cormier, just because there were so many little questions I had. And I knew that someone had said these things, you know, who does Bryn report to in mil- in a military capacity? So when he doesn't show up to his post, who's going to yell at him? I don't know, but I know <laughs> I know someone has said this and you know going to wizards is great when i say have to ask like can you send me all the information on this king of cormier on Fairlawn first king can you send me all that um but if i'm you know if you're asking the backwards question you know fans are great for that people mm. who who have already kind of poured their their heart and soul into um the realms and the realms have so many people like that
0: yes i mean the fans if anything they are passionate yes and the, and the other thing that sounds as well is it, it It seems to me, um, by what I've been reading in the last few years and, and what I'm hearing from you, it really feels like um, D&D novels have leveled up. You know, in the past, if, if you look at novels of, of 10, 15 years ago and, and you read them, uh, you could be forgiving for thinking th- this is uh, literature for young adults. Um, and now it seems that you read a book, a and d book, and you think, this is not just for young adults anymore. This has matured. This has really been very, very well crafted. They are fantastic books. They are not for kids anymore.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I think the. Uh, I actually worked as an editor for um, DD novels. I worked on uh, Eberron and then Forgotten Realms sort of tangentially. And the. Or I was a secondary editor, is what I mean. Uh, and the. You know, everybody who worked there was passionate about mm-hmm. books and passionate about literature and passionate about making sure that these books are, were as good as they could be. And I think, you know, it, it's, it is frustrating that there is this, this reputation that these are just sort of throwaway books. Um, they're not serious. They're the kind of things you don't read in public or you grow out of. Right. Um, and I think to some extent that comes out of the fact that D and D is is perceived as a, ki- a game for teenagers, mm. right? And so, that, and that, that the novels are frequently perceived as just sort of a an addendum to your D&D game. But it's changing, right? I mean, Salvatore, right? There are so many people, like hundreds of thousands of people who read his books and they don't all play D&D. Mm. Like sometimes they just really like reading a good fantasy it's adventure. Similar. So I that's, I think, a thing that's made a big difference is that the, the, the novels are... There are their, they are their own experience. You can do it in conjunction with the game. You can come to the novels and then go into the game. You might come from the game and go to the novels, or you might just like only do one of those Thanks. things. But that means that the novels don't rest on your experience of the game. You you can't kind of be only talking to people who play the game. You have to be talking to people who are just picking up a really good book. And so you want it to be something that's a, a good experience, a you know a good read. Um, and when it came to the sundering, that was one thing that, that they said that, you know, that we don't want these to be YA, we don't want these to be for, for kids. And, and I know previously, like back in second edition, they, they had the so-called comics code and there were, I've, I have looked at this. It was not in place when I was working there, Um, but it was something we had to keep kind of pushing against, you know, we'd say, Hey, what if you, you know, you did this here and and an author would be like, Oh, what? I thought we weren't allowed to do that. Um, my first book, I had a scene where, um, a woman was learning to pick locks and Ed Greenwood, it was for a series called Ed Greenwood presents and Ed Greenwood was reading it. And he said, this is a wonderful scene, but she has to cut it because you can't show someone um, committing a crime. You can't show the the hero committing a crime. And, and the other editor's like, no, that's been, that's been gone. Like, there's no problem with this. (laughs) So he's like, awesome. (laughs) Um, You know, and, and, and so that was, you know, there's, there's still things, you know, they say we, they don't want to see, you know hardcore erotica or something because that's a different audience
0: yeah and it's, it doesn't it doesn't really match up with anything it's either. not necessary is it
1: we're, we're still not allowed to drop f-bombs but <laughs> yeah. but you know there's there's a lot more you know they say we want these to be books for grown-ups hmm. um they i'm trying to remember there were they actually said that the threshold for for sort of sex and violence was a a particular point in in uh, a song of ice and fire and i'm not recalling which one it is now maybe book three but it was i thought it was funny but yeah so there i mean with the sundry there was definitely a push you know they, they gave us more pages to work with the books are thicker um and and they said you know tell the best story you can tell you know don't don't worry about you know, making sure everybody understands all the things of the sundering, you know, but make sure that this is a story that makes you want to be there and and read more.
0: Which is also something fantastic that I feel Wizards is, is doing at the moment. They really are giving people the freedom to do what they think is best and really bring things to life, which is long overdue and absolutely a wonderful, wonderful thing to do.
1: Yeah, I think that that has been sort of the the most exciting thing about fifth edition in a lot of ways is the sense of, you know, your game is your game and mm. saying it explicitly. I think you can look at any edition and, and it's, you know, it's in between the lines. Yeah, it's very you know, I, yeah. Yeah. Like, like fourth edition, there's a lot of emphasis on this is how you play combat. And then there's a little bit that's sort of says, Hey, role-playing is your thing. You, you do what you want to do but it never comes it never really came through i don't think for a lot of people and with fifth edition they they're saying like try this or leave it out hmm. you know do use these rules or just kind of roll with it like make this game your own and i think that's the beauty of D&D is that you can play a game that's suited to you and your your dm and your players right hmm. um my my game right now my dm does lots of these really fascinating puzzles and and uses lots of props and things um, there was one time where we were, we, we like chased some robbers into, uh, the spirit world and the spirits, like, once we sorted out what was going on, they said, Hey, those are unicorn poachers. We need these horns back. Um, we'll give you these spirit berries to help you is, is more involved in this, right? And, and character. And I'm thinking, but we don't know what they'll do. Right. And I'm like, yes, percentile dice, to the <laughs> percentile dice. but instead she pulls out this bowl of jelly beans and she says, these are the spirit berries, pick one. And so the flavor you got, um, she had like decided like all these flavors and what they what sort of powers they created. So, you know, you eat one and it's licorice flavored and you are imbued with the spirit of the wolf or something, and you kind of turn into a werewolf briefly. We we fed that one to our pigeon. So our, we have a were pigeon now. And then yeah. And then we rolled percentile dice to see if it stuck, because she's like, you know sometimes this, there's a chance this is permanent and there's a chance that doing it will trap you in the spirit world. So there's nothing that's simple with her. There's always a comp, comp, you know, consequence, but that's the kind of game that her players want to play, you mm-hmm. know, and other players are going to want to play something that's, you know, more straightforward and, and just, you know, combaty. And some people want to play a game where there's like no rules and you're just role playing at the table, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, what's beautiful about D and D is that it can adapt to all those things. It's very flexible and I think this is this is one of the, it's probably not the first time that's been sort of expressed, but it's definitely, I think, one of the first times it's been celebrated mm. and, and really pushed forward.
0: Yeah, that is a very good way to put it. And actually, before we wrap up, I, I'm going to have to ask you, how many ideas have you got from your gaming group to bring into your books?
1: None. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> It, they're so different in my mind, the way that these two stories get shaped, mm-hmm. that it doesn't. They don't really cross pollinate. I will say, um, in Fire and the Blood, I just have a, I had to name a lot of characters, so I stole a couple of of names from my DMs and PCs, um, just to like get get past a couple of little side people. Um, and that's about the level. Um, I I did take Farida. Farida was originally a character I played in a fourth edition game. But I changed her so much. I almost hesitate to say, "Oh yeah, she's from my game," because <laughs> uh, that Farida was older. She was uh, she had a fae pact. She was really snarky, and, and she just she wasn't Farida. And so when I you know I, I and she had, but she still had a twin sister, and they were still raised by Dragonborn. So we like that. I, I like that idea. Mm. But it was sort of a case of like, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. And you just cross it all out and change it. I completely changed her twin sister because that other character was my friend's, you know, that, that Tamora, her name was Tamara, And Tamora was built for my friend to have fun. She wasn't built to make, you know, to kind of help tell Farida's story. So you have to throw all that out. Um, and I think that's the thing is that, that a lot of the times what works in the game, what's fun in the game, Doesn't work in a novel, and and kind of vice versa. But they can, I mean, they can cross pollinate. I just haven't run into a a scenario that's that's perfect for my book, you know.
0: Yeah, because let's face it, if somebody in your book, you know, oh, I'm having this fail. Well, let's let's take a look at those gummy buns and gummy bears, and (laughs) let's see what happens. (laughs) Let's just eat some berries. Yeah, that'd be awesome. (laughs) <laughs> fire, fire in the blood uh for all listeners out there is out on the 14th of october and obviously it can be pre-ordered uh which i think people should too. um the one thing um i mean this is not the first book in in the series um is the story if people came to this book and, and read it without reading the previous books uh will the story make sense make enough sense for them
1: you know i would have said no i would have said you know this is the first time where i've where i've kind of gone okay we're far enough into the series i will kind of recap for those of you who've been a year since adversary but i don't i can't write it for both anymore and the first three books i really made an effort to make sure that if you picked up this book in the middle you would be able to enjoy it um but uh, I, I just heard from an early reviewer who said, you know, I haven't read any of the other books, but you made it really accessible. You know, he was, he was in an interview. They said, how do you do that? And I was like, I have no idea. Cause I didn't think I did that. So it's entirely possible. Um, if you're, you know, I think if you're the kind of reader who kind of likes to pick up a lot of clues as you're reading and kind of put them back together into the story, uh, you, you probably be okay. But I would really strongly recommend you at least read adversary, um, and if you want the full experience, Brimstone Angels, Brimstone Angels, Lesser Evils, The Adversary, and then Fire in the Blood.
0: There you go. Uh, listeners, that is your shopping list sorted.
1: <laughs> Before we leave, uh, I am going to be playing in a 24-hour D&D game for Extra Life, a charity that benefits Children's Miracle Network and helps families pay for treatment at hospitals across the country. Uh, If you go to extralife.org and search for my name, Erin M. Evans, you can find my donation page. And until October 15th, you can vote for which character I will play in the game. Uh, All your donations are tax deductible and go straight to hospitals like Seattle Children's to help kids.
0: And that is very worthy indeed. And 24 hours of D&D, that sounds fantastic.
1: It's uh, the the DM and one other player playing the full 24 hours. I will be there for eight hours. But...
0: Wow. That, <laughs> that is it was,
1: it was amazing last year. <laughs> <laughs> and it will be broadcast on uh, Twitch on the 25th of
0: October. Oh, no, that should be really good. I really I have to watch that. <laughs> I really have to watch that um erin thank you very very much for for being with me today it's been absolutely wonderful having you around uh, and i i hope i really sincerely hope that fire in the blood is going to be an incredible success because it sounds super exciting
1: it is it is definitely a it is the biggest book i've ever written in a lot of different ways so i hope you're right <laughs> i'm sure it will. thank you so much for having me
0: thank you for listening Hosting and production for this podcast have been by Paco Garcia and the music's been composed by Kev Atset. We would love to hear from you. Feedback and your questions are always welcome and you can email us at at podcast.gmsmagazine.com You can also follow us on Twitter at gmsmagazine, and we are also on Facebook and Google+. I'm very, very happy to talk to you. Remember to subscribe to the GMS Magazine podcast channels in iTunes And give us a review or two and a rating, please, and it's truly appreciated if you do. For more quality shows, remember to listen to other rooms, like the RPG room, the interview room and the board game room, and more rooms that might be coming very soon indeed. But, friends, until the next time, let the games continue.